you, you give us a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It's our God, Jesus Christ, has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, well, here we go, folks. Here we go. Wow. How y'all doing out there? Hope you're doing you're doing all right. Um, as the pandemic rages, it sounds like we have a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, relief, maybe, maybe. I don't know. We got the the um, at least as the recording of this here on the week of the 14th of December in the year of our Lord 2020. Uh, it sounds like we have a vaccine coming. At least I uh, heard vaccine shipments started going out. So we'll see the effectiveness of said vaccine i don't know i don't know i don't know i'm uh you know always a little skeptical i'm gonna get it don't get me wrong i'm gonna get it i'm just gonna be curious to see what the long-term side effects will be um you know with that so um yeah we'll see we'll see we'll see at any rate uh here we are i think uh what uh what is this advent season uh i think something like that that's what's going on and all that good stuff um i'm excited about this week's conversation this is um so i've had janelle on before in fact i'll you know i'll have those uh, in the show notes as always at whitehodgepodcast.com and you look up profane faith and there you have it but um uh, I have not had Patrick on before and Janelle actually reached out and was like, hey, you want to be on a panel uh, dealing with, uh, pro- you know, racial justice as preparation for the second coming? And I was like, oh, man, initially, I actually thought it was just to be a spectator. I was like, hell, yeah, I want to listen to that. But then she was like, no, nah, I want you to participate. So I was like, of course. Yes. So uh, this is what I was talking about a couple weeks ago, and I had the opportunity and privilege to record it. Um, and put this conversation out. It's a great conversation uh, in regards to faith, um, you know, the eschaton, uh, you know, in times in relations to where we're at right now, where we find ourselves, right? I mean, where do we find ourselves? I mean, I think that's a, a really good question to ask ourselves because, you know, sure, Biden has been elected but like I said before, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And so uh, just him and Kamala being elected doesn't mean really a lot. Um, and ultimately, there are bigger tears in the fabric of what we call Western civilization. I'm going to start to unpack some of that uh, later on in the podcast. I'm really um, I'm, I'm really curious to see what y'all think as well. And, and as always, remember the... Uh, there's a question, uh, a little, little uh, link, uh, Google form on uh, the website for Profane Faith. So if you're interested, 
want to post a thought or want to post a question that's uh, there on the website, don't forget. And you can just fill that out and I'll answer uh, stuff or or engage with it on, you know, on here on air. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, don't forget about that. Um, but, yeah, I I've been very interested. There was a great article that came out in the Atlantic um, back in early December. It's called The Next Decade Could Be Even Worse. Uh, Peter Turchin, who is a historian, philosopher, uh, talks a little bit about his own research and how he's looked at uh, 10,000 years of worth of civilizations. And he has some different markers in there. But anyways, he's saying that, you know, we're headed to some interesting times, particularly as, like I've said before, the, the erosion of truth, fact, right? Uh, the creation of really an ideological premise that continues to insist that it is right and it and it only is right um you know there's emerging talks of succession uh from a uh, right-wing uh, pundits and uh you know especially ultra right-wing pundits and not just conservative but also libertarian right-wing uh folks who say you know we can no longer trust uh what is what our what our what our government is doing you know and uh you know we don't trust we don't accept the results of this election and so we got bigger fish i i will always say that you know trump he's problematic in so many ways but he's simply a vessel um a symptom of of, of the bigger issue that's going on uh particularly within religion you think about the amount of young people um you know leaving the church and i'm not one to say let's bring them back <laughs> you know, I think that's the difference, right? I mean, I saw a couple of campaigns online about, you know, let's bring the million back, you know, the folks that are leaving the church. And I'm like, nah, bring them back to what? Right? Another generation to be hurt by, you know, people who hate LGBTQ people, right? Another generation to be hurt by white supremacy uh, within organizations. Another generation to be dismayed uh, and disillusioned by their mid 20s because they thought something was going to happen and they didn't. Uh, and it didn't. Were <clears throat> they disillusioned by their own questions? Right? I, what are we bringing them back to? Especially if it's evangelicalism. What the hell are we bringing them back to? So, I don't really, yeah, I'm not all in favor of bringing folks back to, uh, to, to something that if it's just going to be the same damn thing. Um, so I, I think that's for me, it's, it's reimagining what religion looks like, which is why I was so excited about, uh, this conversation, uh, that y'all are about to, um, listen to and just engage in, in, in what that means. I think, um, again, uh, you know, this Turek talks about, you know, some of these, uh, markers that he says, and, you know, he says, he talks about elitism and not just economic elitism, but also educational elitism. Um, the markers that say, you know, you can arise to a certain point or a spectacle in a society and then you become the elite, the, the, the academic elite, right? And what that looks like, you know, and he talks a little bit about how Trump's presidency in general is really a pushback of educated people and people who have been kind of cut out of other political spaces, rightfully so in many cases, uh, but folks who were misfits, um, 
which is very interesting. It really kind of connects even to a, a DC comic, the Bane, you know, in the in the in in that Batman saga, right, where they're all trying to overthrow uh, the elite, right? These rich people have taken over the world, and we, as you know, working class, are here to take it back, which is. Part of the undertone that you hear in some of this rhetoric from the right, right? Uh, you know the chant that uh, was said in uh, in uh, what was it, Charleston? You know, and you know, we will not uh, be uh, erased. We will not be forgotten. We will not be, you know, overtook. Now, granted, these are all etched in racialized lines, right? A conception that you know whiteness is being threatened in certain ways and stuff, and. You know, I'll just elaborate. You know, this you don't have to be an extremist Nazi <laughs> alt writer. Uh, you can be working in a non, you know, not for profit organization, a church setting where you feel your own whiteness is being uh, threatened. But you don't name it that. It's just like, well, I feel like I don't have a voice, or I don't feel like, you know, I can say anything, or I don't feel like I can be the one, you know, to to affect change. Right? It's like all those things taking place again i'm i'm not so sure i want to bring people back to that but again what are we bringing them back to so uh yeah those, those are some deep questions um especially with some of the research that's out there um, you know with young people i the, the, i think it was the end of season three um i put out uh, two episodes uh, two part one and part two uh, on young people went and interviewed some and then shared some of my own research in regards to that so if you're interested you can go check that out um and you know just you know hear upon that and then i've also put out some books um of course soul of hip-hop that's a little bit older in fact this is the 10-year anniversary i got an episode coming up on that as well 10-year anniversary of the soul of hip-hop um talked about my research but that's of course a little older that's a little dated research more recent stuff is the stuff that i put out in um uh homeland insecurity you know which looks a little bit more you know some contemporary times of where we're really at um, with our young people so yeah you know so i figured this would be a great conversation uh to have so patrick uh, wallace he's a currently the senior research assistant overseeing a research project on the future visions of theological education from the perspective of next generation african-american christian leaders patrick is a recent graduate of fuller theological seminary where he received his mdiv and an alumnus of penn state university where he received his ba in religious studies Patrick has also spent most of his professional life in various education levels, including two years at Pasadena City College, PCC, for those who are from that area, serving as an academic coach, program coordinator, and lecturer. He also spent five years as the director uh, for a Christian education nonprofit. Patrick's uh, current research seeks to engage how African-American history could be viewed as prophetic history in American uh, in America, uh, which also promotes an epistemology undergirded by a prophetic intellect, especially perspectives that engage and challenge the notion of race. All right. So I was I was on with this brother. Right, man, he's breaking down. And of course, Janelle, she has well over 15 years of experience facilitating group conversations on race, designing racism and multicultural education programs, mentoring individuals and supporting institutional leadership as they think through strategies to take seriously diversity and inclusion and integration um she is also who she is deeply involved in the movement in the twin cities uh with george floyd and defunding the police um you'll hear some of that in this conversation um but i also just want to you know big shout out to the work that she's doing because she's doing ground level work that's like right there at ground zero where all this stuff popped off this summer 
Um, of course, Janelle has, you know, she she did graduate from Fuller as well. Uh, and uh, she's got uh, MAICS, Master's in Intercultural Studies. Um, she's been doing that for a long time. She said after completing uh, that, she went on to earn a Master of Divinity in Christian Ethics. Over the course of her time at Fuller, Janelle worked in the capacity of advising service coordinator, academic advisor, advising systems, and communications manager. In fact, that was probably where I first met her about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago uh, in that capacity. And uh, she's just great. She's amazing. Again, I'll put the link to her show that I had her on before uh, in the show notes, Profane Faith, White Eye Podcast. Um, but, but again, great leader, great person engaged in the community. And also, I will say Dubai Janelle is also a great person just to look at what mysticism looks like in uh, black theology. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation that we had a few weeks back. Happy to present it here. Um, and uh, Janelle did organize this, by the way. And, you know, this is so a big shout out to the work that she's doing uh, and putting this together. Stay safe, y'all. Stay healthy, wear them damn masks, keep them on, and we'll see you next week. Here you go. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Um, today, we wanted to um, have a conversation, a part of our Advent Conversations on Race that Janelle explained a little bit before. Um, in this, in this conversation, we want to be talking through different themes of Advent um, in this series. So Advent, for those who may not be as familiar, um, within the Christian liturgical calendar, this is the time leading up to Christmas um, where we reflect on um, not only Christ's birth, but the second coming of Christ. And so there are different themes attached to that. The Themes that we have um, decided to hone in on are race and government, race and preparation, um, race and mercy, and race and hope. So we want to take these themes of Advent and put them in conversation with race and racial justice um, in our current context. So today we're focusing on race and preparation, and we'll be talking about um, racial, just, racial justice as preparation for the coming of Christ. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of our framework that we'll be working with today. Um, we'll be talking with... Dr. Daniel Dwight Hodge and Patrick Wallace um, for 30, 45 minutes. And then afterwards, we'll have a Q&A time where we can ask questions. So wonderful. Thank you, Erica. Um, so excited to be here today. Um, so excited to be alive, uh, especially on this conversation of racial justice. Um, so for those of you don't, who don't know, um, I live in Minneapolis and I work at George Floyd Square as well as a volunteer. And so last night we just had a police invasion <laughs> uh, at George Floyd Square. And so this conversation for me is really ripe to be able to think about our faith um, and what does it mean to actually be working um, and doing the work of racial justice as a, a form of preparation. And so um, really glad to have Dan, Dr. Dan Whitehodge here and Patrick Wallace. Dan looks like he's ready to go podcast style. I'm like, he has like the <laughs> ultimate setup. <laughs> I'm just trying. I'm just trying to keep up with y'all. <laughs> he stays ready. Um, so I love when I, when I have conversations, um, so I don't miss anything. I love for my guests to be able to self-introduce and introduce how you want um, our 
our listeners to be able to know you. Uh, we are recording. We were going to do live stream, but uh, Zoom wasn't connecting properly. And so we're just recording it and then we'll be posting it online for people to engage in the future. But um, so Dr. Dan, uh, why don't we start with you, kick off, do a self-introduction and let the people know what you want them to know about you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Janelle. In fact, funny thing, when Janelle posted this in this little text thread that she, we are all a part of, um, I actually thought it was to come and just to hang out and to listen. And I was like, oh yeah, front seats. I'm going to have my popcorn ready. I'm going to be, shoot, preparing for Jesus and the end of times and social justice. And Janelle was like, no, I want you to participate. I was like, oh, dang. So I am thankful to be here um, and thankful to be a part of this conversation. Um, I am a, an educator. I've been educating in, in higher ed for almost 20 years now. I'm in Chicago now, currently. I'm from California. And um, yeah, I'm a professor of intercultural communication and uh, my research looks at some of the interests of the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane, particularly how hip-hop manifests and deals with uh, theology and, and, um, and religion, really. Uh, in some of my newer areas, I'm looking at, you know, how media, how can a, <laughs> how in the era of Trump, right, uh, you know, can we have such an, uh, an algorithm, if you will, of the loss of truth and fact, right? It's like everybody's truth is equal, including Nazis, right? And if you don't allow Nazis to speak, then somehow you're now being a, you know, you're hindering justice and you're doing this. So I'm curious as to see how that all connects. And of course, how white evangelicals have supported that. Um, that's kind of me. I do a podcast called Profane Faith. It's a weekly podcast. Um, if folks want to find out more about me, and by the way, I am recording this as well. So this will probably be on one episode or so, um, I'm at whitehodge.com. So I'll stop there. A little brief introduction. Thank you, Dr. Dan. And Patrick, um, your next brother, will you please self-introduce? I'm sorry, my my brother's internet is horrible right now. So if I freeze in the process, please, I apologize. Um, so I'm Patrick Wallace. Um, I am an alum of Fuller Theological Seminary where I received my Master's in Divinity. Um, after that, um, I left and went straight to D.C. to do a fellowship um, wherein I was engaging uh, theology in the public sector. Um, and actually received training on how to um, on how to basically consult faith-based organizations um, and things like that in DC. Um, after that, I just started like doing a lot of reading and research um, because one day I, I hope to have the opportunity to create curriculums um, that engages African American history and how African American history is a prophetic history in America. Um, and so, either you know, doing that and creating my own, you know, organization or creating my own consulting firm, or maybe just going back to get my doctorate and doing more research. I haven't figured out how I'm going to engage that, but that's one of the things that I'm interested in right now um, and why I'm interested in this conversation, especially. So that's a little bit about me. And I'm, I'm currently at my brother's house in Philly right now. I moved back to my hometown finally after 20 years of being away. So it's, it's, it's good to be back home. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Patrick. Um, so let's let's kick off. I want I want to say that Advent is a very interesting season in the church calendar for me because I grew up in a small black church um, where like our our pastors had um, like high school education and were just doing the best they could to follow Jesus and pastor people to follow Jesus. And so the church calendar wasn't a thing that that I knew about. And I, it wasn't really until going to like theological education um, that I started to hear about this thing called Advent. Um, and like any black person that goes to predominantly white Christian school, and you don't know anything that they're talking about because your church did not teach you those things. You just fake it till you make it. Like you don't ask questions. You don't ask like what is Advent or anything. You just, you, you work like a little kid and then you listen and you try to piece things together. So I actually first thought that Advent was just like, oh, another word for Christmas. Like we're just leading up. Um, it's like pregame till Christmas. And then it really wasn't until like, towards like my latter days in seminary that um, I learned that it was about the second coming of Christ and not the first coming of Christ. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But I was like, let's run with it. Um, <laughs> and so, and, so um, it, and then I entered into a black Episcopal church for some time and that really helped me begin to have a little bit more understanding about how we think about Advent in terms of waiting um, for the second coming of Christ. And in today's topic, we're taking the theme of preparation and how do we prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ? And because of the work that we do at Racial Agency Initiative is, is all centered around the work of racial justice, uh, we want to have a unique conversation and specifically looking at the work of racial justice and how we use that and leverage that as a part um, of the Christian faith tradition as preparation for waiting for the second coming of Christ. Um, and really to, to play with that idea, to think through that, to imagine that because we're, we're in a time where 2020 uh, has been deeply rooted in race tensions. Like the race tensions are so thick. Um, it's To me, I compare it to like living in California and whenever you're driving on the side of the roads and they have those like meters that say like how high the fire threat is. And then you have like low to like, and it goes like green all the way to bright red. Like we're in bright red right now in the United States of America for, for race tensions. Um, and so I think this conversation is extremely important for uh, people of Christian faith to be having in terms of where does the work of racial justice fit as we prepare for the coming of Christ? Uh, because I, like, I've seen a million memes about like, we don't need to deal about race because Jesus is coming and Jesus will fix it. <laughs> Jesus will fix it all. Um, and, and that's really problematic the, uh, theology. Um, and so the first question that I'm gonna pose to Dan and Patrick, and you all can take these questions um, as, as you please. Um, there's no particular order we could play around and Erica can jump in um, as you feel so led as well. Uh, but the first question is, how does practicing racial justice prepare us for the coming of Christ? Where's the connection? Is there a connection? Um, how should people be thinking about 
racial justice, because most people are just going to think about racial justice in terms of like thousands of people marching on the streets whenever something goes down. Um, what does that even have to do with the coming of Christ? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start this round. Um, well, I think there's a couple of different things when, when I hear that. I mean, for one, I think that that is the preparation. When, I, and when we talk about racial justice and racial equity, um, it, it's, it is much more than marches. I, and I think that a lot of people think that that's just yet because, you know, back in the day, uh, Dr. King and, and the civil rights, you know, group, they capitalized on new media. Television was a new media during the late fifties and sixties and people really hadn't seen. In fact, one of the reasons the Vietnam war ended was because of television. People saw the actual films and the battles of what was happening and how war was, was actually being, being played out. So you couldn't just print anything like you could in World War II. Now you had live captures of what was going on. So people were like, oh my gosh. And so we're in a new media right now. We're also at a time where black death in particular, black and brown death is just commonplace, right? There is, you can go on almost any social media platform now and you can scroll up a video right now of somebody dying, losing their life, Um that is something traumatic, uh, right? And I think for me, when I think about the, you know, the, the eschaton and eschatology, and those are just fancy seminary words for end of days, right? Um, I, I think about like God saying like, look, I left y'all here to, to get this stuff ready, like to get some things put together. Um, I think we have fallen, and when I say we, I don't want to necessarily, I say collectively as Christians, as, as someone who professes a, a Christian faith, I don't identify as an evangelical. I would probably say in some sense, I'm kind of more of a post-Christian and, um, dare I say, you know, uh, well, I don't want to lose too many people by saying that. I'll just say I'm a kind of a post-Christian in that sense that I don't necessarily center the, uh, you know, the, the, the great commission as the only thing that Christians should be doing. Um, and by that, I mean that, you know, how do we look at living on this earth was where, with what we have, people have fallen prey to the old Billy Graham concept that said, Hey, as long as we get people saved, racial just injustice will end itself, right? As long as we get people saved and in the church, uh, all these inequities, they will they will take care of themselves because Christians will, you know, will take care. We don't need any government, you know, for that. We just need Christians being Christians. Well, we're 50, 60 years into that. And, you know, we're still dealing with some of the same things we were dealing with. And this for me, part of me is particularly now as I look at this, I mean, I grew up as a black Seventh-day Adventist. So this was, it was all about Third Angel's message and Isaiah and, you know, the lion. I mean, you've had people coming in and doing all kinds of art and crazy stuff, right? In church, you know, this is what Isaiah was talking about. And this is Jeremiah and the prophet. I ain't there no more. I'm just going to keep it real. Um, I think we're thousands, a few thousand years off from that. But I do think that God in some way is saying, y'all going to be able to get this? Like, are we going to have to start over? Are y'all going to be able to get this? Y'all really, this, the whole least of these things, are you really going to be able to understand what that means in this day and age? You have the most technology, right? You have all these things. It's like Tupac said, there's no reason why somebody should be homeless and people still hitting the lotto for $50 million, right? It's like, wow, what, yeah. how do we engage with the material that we have, right? We have running water. Do you know how indoor plumbing, 
you know how many thousands of years humans existed without that? I mean, and so the fact that we have these things, yet we're still dealing with some of the basic concepts that one particular group thinks they're better than. And because of, you know, again, and Trump for me was, it's easy to put everything on him. He was a manifestation of the the harm and the cancer that has been in particularly here in the United States for a very long time. Um, so for me, this is this is preparation. Like, how are we supposed to get to heaven? And we still looking over the corner and be like, well, who's that over there? How come they got here? I mean, think about it. Jesus had all these conversations with the disciples, like right? the great banquet. And he's telling them like, look, these fools over here, they coming in just as they are. And the disciples pissed as a mofo, right? They're like, wait, we did all this work. We did all this stuff over here, Jesus. How are you going to let them in and put them at the banquet table? And Jesus is saying some crazy stuff, which is why we can talk more about Jesus. Because I think Jesus was just a radicalist in so many of the ways. Um, Tell us about Jesus. Dr. Dan, oh, tell man. Well, Jesus. I mean, I think, in fact, I was just on another podcast yesterday talking about, I think we have missed the aspect and the components of the historic Jesus. Jesus as a radical, I'm going to go and put a foot in somebody's ass. And he, you know, and this is the thing when people say, oh, we got to sit down and reconcile with one another. Janelle, you know this. I mean, you know this right now with, with your city council, right? Ain't nobody, really? nobody trying to reconcile with you. Jesus nope. did not sit down with the Pharisees and Sadducees, either within the canon that we have and also paracanonical literature. He never sat down and was just like, all right, let's let's work this out. All right. I, I know we have our differences and let's see what we know. That is a fallacy. That is a construct of what I like to call a settler colonial evangelicalism that, that the Eurocentric mind has put forth, that somehow we as people of color are supposed to somehow forgive our oppressors. Meanwhile, they will use violence. They will use oppression at any turn they want to and justify it right in the name of God. That, for me, I mean, that goes into the whole Pablo Fierre and pedagogy of the oppressed. I'm like, no way, Jose. Right. So for Ooh. me, Jesus was a radicalist. He, right, he, he worked on the Sabbath. He came in, and in fact, he had strong words for all the church and city officials, and he's talking to like, I am the way and the light. I mean, for, for all of that to be like, man, people were like pissed at Jesus. Like, how dare you say we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood? People miss that concept. And we get this friendly Jesus that never really said much. No, Jesus had a foul mouth. When you read the scripture for what they really are. Um, and again, that's part of what the Christianity that we have before us has, has debilitated so many people of color to actually take the action that we need to take. And I don't know. I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I genuinely don't have the answer, but I know that the way we're doing it isn't working. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Dan. Patrick, you should win first, but we're going to let you talk. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, as uh, what I've been thinking about, because especially as I've moved, I lived in D.C. for two years. Uh, moved back to Philly. Um, yeah. Been reading a lot of Willie Jennings and J. Cameron Carter. Um, and I remember listening to a talk with Willie Jennings and he talked about how, you know, he talks about, you know, sharing space and community and stuff like that. But he says it's, it's very sick and it's, it's a sick idea to think that people who live just three miles from another group of people who may be struggling and think that their struggle is not connected to them at all. And I think that as I'm looking at, especially in D.C., I mean, gentrification is rapid. 
like just in the two years that I've lived there on the neighborhood that I lived in, it was a lot of black people within two years. I'm seeing nothing but white people walking their dogs. Um, and just seeing the, just the effects of the neighborhood, seeing more police presence, um, seeing, you know, a lot of the, the young people who, especially during the pandemic right now, you know, we've had a lot of situations with a lot of young men and a lot of young men have been shot and killed. And so like, I'm just thinking a lot more about like, what does it look like for us, especially black people in the community to build community? Um, mm. Because because even in, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the defunding of police and all of those things, like how do we even as a community and as a people like regulate ourselves and like take care of each other and create a community of sharing and all those things. Like I'm, I feel like right now I'm wrestling more with that. Like, I think I'm done with trying to convince white people to change and white people to like participate in, in racial justice and all those things. I'm more so concerned about how do we participate and embody that as a community of black people. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, you know, the things that I see going on in places like Philly and D.C., I feel like we as black people, we need community and we need to take care of each other. And we need uh, to, you know, exhibit what I see in the book of Acts, wherein, you know, the church has become a community of sharing. And that's how we know that they are. Uh, that's how they know that the Holy Spirit has has transformed that community through their sharing. So, like, those are the things that I'm thinking about in terms of racial justice and all of right now. Absolutely. I, th I think with, with both of what you're saying, like as um, I, I even think about on the ground in the streets of Minneapolis and what we're navigating right now, especially Dr. Dan, you brought up our attempted negotiations with city council and, and, and that goes nowhere because they exist to protect the system, right? They, the system exists to protect itself always. Um, and, and as we think about the work of racial justice um, and we think about the work and the life and the way of Jesus, everything was so deeply centered around community. It was, it was deeply centered around um, bringing the voices of the marginalized people to the table, like the, the table that Jesus sat at and ate and fed with. And the people who got the message of Jesus were always the most marginalized people. Um, right. And so the, that work... Um, of racial justice is deeply rooted in community making, but in community in community making among the marginalized, among the oppressed, right, yeah. <laughs> um, and building up their capacity to be recentered in the context of community, recentered in the context of society. And I think that um, part of the reason why it's so critical and crucial for us to be doing this kind of work is if we as the church are preparing ourselves for the coming of Jesus. And if Jesus lived his entire life to show us the way that God has always called us to live since the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. Um, and if we're not doing that, that all begs the question of what are we to even expect when Jesus comes? Because I think right now, so many people in the church, um, especially in the evangelical church, it's like, uh, did I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Check. Uh, did I say the sinner's prayer? Check. Did I go to church every Sunday? Check. Like, okay, when Jesus comes, I should be passing right through the pearly gates. Um, and it, it, as if somehow that, that, that those are the criteria, the measurements by which 
um, Jesus is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Um, come on home and enter into your, your rest. Like that, that instead of to say, how are you living out the work of centering the marginalized in our society, centering the racially oppressed in our society. Man, when, when James Cone wrote that book, God of the Oppressed, it disrupted so much because people couldn't wrap their minds around a God who didn't like white people. <laughs> like it was, it was challenging to say that this, the, the God of creation is a God that stands with the most marginalized people in our society, which are black folks or, um, in this day of time. Yeah, Patrick. Or, and, and I think what also James Cone was, was like pointing out is that not only, I, I would say even more James Cone was pointing out that God is not committed to white people's way of being in the world. He's not committed to their vision. Wherein white people pre- preach this idea that, that, the white evangelical vision of Christianity is something that God is committed to and that they've made God accessible to. And the reality is like, no, God, Jesus was in solidarity with the people who were on the margins. God, he wasn't with the people in the Eiffel Tower. Mm. And so like, I think, I think, I think more so I would say that James Cone is like, God, God ain't committed to that. You are, y'all think Absolutely. he is, but he, he not, he not, he not in solidarity with that. He's in solidarity with, with what he sees going on and and on the bottom and the people on the margins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Long story short, we can't prepare ourselves for a Jesus if we're not actually doing the work that Jesus also lived to do. Uh, Dr. Dan. No, I, 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 I just, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that that, that is, is revolutionary in, in sense of Christian theology, but in the, in the overall sense, the historical piece, I mean, that has been Christianity. I think Constantine messed a lot of things up by, you know, raising the sword up and saying, hey, you going to follow God or you going to die? Any mofo <laughs> going to be like, well, hell, I'll follow who this guy is. Just don't kill a brother. Shoot. You know, so <laughs> the historical Christianity is that it was yes. on the margins and Jesus came from the mar- If Jesus wanted to do all that, Jesus could have been like, look, I'm showing up and, you know, on a bins. Boom, we're going to do lasers day one. We're going back to the beginning. Bam. Microchip. <laughs> you know, I got you. But he didn't. And, go, go, Jesus, peace. Right. Exactly. Got the, <laughs> right. Exactly. Got the Jesus. Exactly, man. So. <laughs> that and and I think about that and it's like that is an area we again as Christians today it's it's difficult to look at because so much of church growth is based around how I can make you feel and again I don't mean to point out just one person but I think about Joel Osteen's church it's you know it's again it's about this self help it's really a Tony Robbins approach for those you who don't know Tony Robbins he's like a uh, 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 what was it, a motivational speaker and, and joined, he was popular in the 90s and he tried to come back in the 2000s, but then Me Too movement happened. And, you know, and that nigga went out. But ever, nevertheless, oh, sorry. I'm so, I'm so used to being on the podcast. Uh, I, I'm it's sorry. Okay. I, I apologize. Be yourself. I, 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 should, I, I do have a bleep button. I should use that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, it was really that approach, right? Let's do these four steps to Christianity and you too will be saved. And um, that's a popular message. It is not popular to go out and say, like when Jesus was like, you know, when the rich young ruler, like, what, what do I need to internal, you know, internalize, you know, be, the, be in heaven. And that mofo walks away pissed. He walks away pissed. And Jesus even says it. It's like, man, it's harder right, for a camel to walk through than even you like needle oven. 
I have a needle. Like what? I don't. Geez, what are you talking about? Like think, but think about that. That to sit on that. That is some crazy stuff. And also, that's a conviction for me. I mean, we live in one of the most wealthiest countries of the world, right? Uh, and and what does then does that mean? When I see the homeless person on the corner, right? They're, they're they're literally right up the street. How does that seem? What does it mean to live on the west side of Chicago, where literally I'm not making this up? I can walk outside right now, and there are easily a dozen churches on one block. You go to the next block, there's another church. So, does that mean is that equal change? And I, I don't know. I mean, again, it's difficult because again, people are consumed with let's just get people saved, and right. yeah. Right. And I, and I saw that this summer at George Floyd Square, where you had hundreds uh, and thousands of black <clears throat> folks mostly gathering to grieve um, and to express their pain and their hope. And then you had a lot of like white evangelicals like spotted throughout the crowd, like passing out tracks and things like that. And I even had um, even long after that, I had um, I was having a conversation with a friend on a park bench that one of the community members built. And we're just sitting there chilling, talk about black people things. And this one white chick comes through and she kind of looks awkward and funny. And then she moves her way closer and then she just interrupts her conversation. And starts talking about Jesus. Doesn't ask anything about her background. Doesn't ask anything about her spirituality. Doesn't even ask if she can interrupt. Let's just like, how? Excuse me. Um, may, may I interrupt your conversation, please? And I am sitting there thinking, this is why people don't like Christians so much. Like I'm just like, like this is just, this is just rude. Like it's, uh, but you're more so concerned. And thinking about, do and is my soul going to be saved? Then you are actually concerned about my humanity in that moment, and what does that relationship look like? And the fact that I'm here in this space, and I'm having another conversation with a black sister, and and in your mind, you just or not even in your mind, but what what pe white people tend to do is white Christians tend to do a lot is just take up space, right? They just come in, take up space and and descend their agenda upon everybody else with the assumption that nobody else knows God except for them. And until they hear out of our mouths uh, the four spiritual laws, then they won't be satisfied and they won't walk away and they won't go away. Yep. And and I said, and because of that, like I intentionally, I mean, I went toe to toe with her theologically and I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong of me. Like, I, but, but it was just like, I, it's not, that's not okay. That's not okay. And, and how Christians need to, to think about even having like a, a theology of racial justice and how we understand, how we live out and practice and do racial justice within our Christian faith um, in such a way that it actually honors the human of people and rehumanizes people. We don't even think about how the ways in which we do evangelism, the way in which we do mission um, actually perpetuates uh, racial oppression. We don't, we don't step back and think about it. And so when I think about preparing for the coming of Jesus, does, does, uh, the way Christian missions work actually push people away from the coming of Jesus as opposed to bring people toward. 
uh, you mentioned Willie Jennings earlier, Patrick, and I sat in a class with him and he talked about the three components that actually allowed colonization to work were missionaries, merchants, and, sh- and soldiers. And the right, way yeah. that, that missions operated to actually build relationships with people, but then create a bridgeway for merchants and soldiers to come and take people's stuff um, and take people's land. But then also missionaries try to convince people that they were evil and that they were subhuman and they were demonized. And and their only way to actually to be good would be be to become white and to become Christian. Um, And so Christianity has been used to racially oppressed people. And if we continue to use those same methods, we don't adopt a different kind of, understanding of who Jesus is and practice um, our faith in a way that reflects the the Jesus of scriptures. Uh, Are we even practicing racial justice, even though we think we may be? Patrick, you want to say something? And I think, I think, um, and I think James, uh, J. Cameron Carter would probably add to that is that the problem, the ultimate problem is a theological problem and how we interpret scripture outside of this context in order to then contrive it for colonialism or racism and those things. Um, I mean, like just the, just maybe even the whole idea of dividing people as race beings and then adding capitalism to that and giving each, each of those racial groups a certain economical value, that there are some people who are more valuable than other people. Um, is something that I don't, is not present in scripture. I mean, we, we, we believe in a God who is entangled with human life and humankind. And even Jesus himself embodies both the divine and human. So the whole notion of the entanglement of even God, who is the authority above everything, but still desires to be entangled with humankind. And then to promote this notion that there's one group of human beings that is more greater or more important, or more superior than the other. I just think it just doesn't theologically, it does, it's not supported in scripture. So you'd have to take, you would have to take that theology and insert it into something different in order to justify colonialism and racism. Erica, I want to invite you into this conversation to give your thoughts, because I know you're a great thinker um, and you have a lot of thoughts. I want to invite you in this conversation, and then I want you to introduce us into that that next question, because I think that is critical, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is great. I think, Janelle, you and I have had a lot of conversations about colonialism and how colonialism shows up in modern day white evangelicalism and missions work and all that. I think something I've been thinking about a lot as everybody has been talking is um, how this idea that justice is tangential to the gospel. It's not really a part of it that, I don't know, I've heard it a lot, at least from white Christians, right? Like, why don't we just focus on the gospel and, you know, everything else will fall into place. And I think Dr. Haji kind of brought that up with um, Billy Graham and kind of Billy Graham eschatology. Um, like, I think there's a quote, I think it was in, it might've been in response to um, the I have a dream speech where he says, you know, little, you know, black and white children aren't going to hold hands until Jesus comes again. Like it's not, it's basically not going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, to get back on track with what I was originally saying, I think that at the root of, to be able to separate justice and doing justice from the gospel, there also has to be this separation, at least in my mind, there's this separation of the physical condition, the the physical experience, and then the spiritual, right? So, you know, Christianity becomes about um, whether or not you have a ticket to heaven or hell, you said the prayer or whatever, you're saved or not. Um, And then 
nothing else really matters about what physical oppression you might be experiencing. Um, and I, and I think the root of that is so much in American slavery where, you know, in order to justify Christianizing the slaves and, um, converting them to Christianity, you had to separate it from their physical bondage, right? Like that was the only way that they could logistically and theologically and any other type of reason, that's the only way they could justify it. Um, And so, yeah, I think as we continue, and this has been another theme, I think of a lot of our conversations, as you just continue to press and kind of ask these why questions and press in on these concepts, um, that I think have become so normalized because of the dominant power that is white evangelicalism. Once you press and press and press, you get to um, a root that is actually very ugly and very much so not the gospel at all. Um, right. So yeah, that's kind of just what's been going on in my mind mm-hmm. as everybody's been talking. But um, yeah, to transition into our next question, it is what can racial justice look like for everyday people? Ooh, that's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'll I'll speak. I mean, as I've been fortunate enough to be a part of an array of different organizations, I'll speak first on the, the concept of defunding the police. I was a part when I lived in California. I lived in Pasadena, and so Northwest Pasadena was, you know, traditionally known as the hood, right? However you want a terminology, but you know, people always think of Pasadena as the you know, Rose Bowl and Rose Parade and on ice and, and but no, this is, this is an entire swatch, as we know in most cities, right, um, of the community that people didn't talk about. So uh, there was a shooting downtown and I remember the mayor was talking about, what can we do? I'm like, well, it took that to get you to, but whatever, let's, let's get involved. <laughs> and it was a sense of, let's take money out of the, the millions that we're giving the police and actually put this back into the community. So, I was a part of, of, it was like a 12 tier system. I was one component that was also part of the policing unit. Then those people came from the community. The two brothers that were on watch in in our area came from the community. So they knew the culture. They knew people. They knew Miss Jackson up the street, right? They knew sister. So, right. So they knew the levels of what was going on in there. Those police uh, to those policemen also acted as watch guards when other cops tried to show up in the territory and they could be like, Hey, hold up here. You, you, you're, you're getting into something like hold up. So when JJ has a problem, I may get a call. This other organization may get a call like, Hey, you know what? The, you know, brother Harris, he's off his, he's off his meds right now. He's on top of his roof. And, you know, uh, we, we need y'all to come down here. If a fight breaks out right up the street, my park used to be synonymous, which is, you know, middle schoolers fighting and stuff. They would call me, the cops would call me and be like, hey, just so you know, you got some boys up here. If you want to come out and handle this, otherwise, you know, we go in, it may not look good. So this operated in this sense, violence came down, people in the community began to engage with actually the, the officers. We began to have block parties. This thing operated for about eight months until a new mayor comes in and says, what are we doing? We must protect our communities and we must, what are we doing? We got to put more money back into the police and we got to crack down on crime. And guess what happens? We go right back to what we normally see. And so for me, it goes back to the wealth of nations. And this is where I feel like, I don't know how to get my head around it. If you haven't really ever read the book, The Wealth of Nations, I highly recommend reading that because it really puts into perspective of where we're really at with capitalism, 
post-capitalism, neoliberalism, and how right. like Carnegie and um, uh, you know all these cats, Rockefeller, set up the system that we have now of making money because police are getting paid, right? Um, and mm. we've known this for a long time. It's news to a lot of people. Like, I can't believe there are Nazis in there. Please, it must just mean a few. Like, no, I got a neighbor right now, African American. He's just a little older than me. He just retired from the police force, and he was just like, I couldn't take the amount of white racist cops coming in the force because they wanted to take their aggressions out on black people. He said, I just, I had to get out. This is one of mm. one of the good cops that we hear about all the time. Had another cat up the street from where I live at now, man, a white guy. He, you know, had his come to Jesus moment back in 2009 and was just like, man, Trayvon Martin, like, oh my gosh, Black Lives Matter. He couldn't be a cop anymore. He was just like, I couldn't legally be in here anymore with the way the system works. And what do people need now? I mean, they need equity. They need the fairness. These people who say, oh, we need the system. Just trust the system. Trust the violence is not the way. Then what is the way? Because violence seems to work when y'all wanted to work. Ain't nobody talking about reconciliation and, and not rioting after 9-11. After 9-11, it was like, I want an enemy. I want a target. I want to see it on television. I want somebody blown up. I want somebody killed. People celebrating in the streets when Osama bin Laden was killed. We wasn't talking about, oh, let's bring him into the fight. Let's, let's, let's sit down with him, you know? Talk with your enemy. Nah, uh-uh. Hell no, I want his head. <laughs> I want his head. And that ties back into media, right? We, When I did work in Hollywood, I used to work with um, uh, uh, test audiences. And over and over again, audiences hate when the villain doesn't get their up and comings at the end of the movie. We don't like it when the villain walks away, Right. So all that stuff is bred into us. So all that to say, what do people want? It's like black people have borne the brunt. Native Americans have borne the brunt. You know, brown folks, uh, by and large, have borne the brunt. Uh, poor, disenfranchised Asians have borne the brunt of this country's boot. And I'm curious to see how this is all going to come to a head because we're to the generation now that says, look, we've, we, we, already, we already did all the things that you said. Now all those people are either dead or in jail or sent into exile. So what are we supposed to do? Just keep asking? Keep waiting? So what do people need? Man, just the, the basic equity of life. I mean, think about that. Existing. How can I exist and be a person? Why do I have to think about taking up arms? Right? Why do I have to you know, teach my kids right what they have to do when they get pulled over by the police? Um, that type of stuff. And we haven't even gotten to, you know, like, what is it? The, the levels of the hierarchy of levels of needs and stuff. We haven't even gotten to that. We're just on the basic, you know, I just need to be safe. You know, can I be safe? You know what I'm saying? Uh, and yeah, I can go on, but I think for me, that's at the basic level of, of where we need to be at. Dan, I, I need you to um, go into this a little bit more. It's because what, what is happening right now in America um, is that that word safety is a, is a trigger word. Um, and for many white people, police equals safety. Yeah. And for many people of color, especially black and brown people, police equal 
a threat to safety. Yeah. Um, and so can you dive into that a little bit more about yeah. how, like, how do we navigate that term safety and what is that, what does that need to look like and how does justice bring safety? I'm glad you brought that up. That's good. Cause there is a whole culture and ideology around the word safe, safety and comfort for that matter. I mean, there's a lot, I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel safe. Um, when I mean safe and when I mean I, I'm talking about, again, just the 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 right to exist, to know that if there is a law that says, hey, you know, the police pull you over. Why are you why are you looking so suspicious that I if I act normal that at the outcome, if they're just pulling me over because of speeding, I know that I can just walk away with a ticket, not getting beat, not getting drug out or not getting killed for that matter. I can I can we can know that Sandra Bland, if she's pulled over again, because there's going to be another Sandra Bland because nothing's been fixed right now. We're in the lull of all this stuff right now. Right. Because it's winter. Well, at least it's winter here in the Midwest. I know in California, y'all, it's 64. It's cold. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, shoot, I was like, I thought I was like 34 the other day. I was like, man, this is a little warm out here today. I've adjusted to the Midwest, y'all. Um, we in the low right now, right? So it's just a matter of time because nothing's been fixed. And then we're going to be having the same conversations again. I think what is depressing about that issue of safety is that after the uprisings in 92, I thought, man, we can just pull the because the community was coming, pulling it together. I mean, again, another example of what happens when people say, oh, we can just get all the bloods and crips in one room. That was the case. People throwing down their flags, people trying to work together. Rebuild L.A. was was this initiative, multi-billion dollar initiative that said they were going to bring over 400,000 jobs to the riot zone. Nothing ever happened. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Uh, you said this and wait a minute and so we now have a generation that is just it's lost the hope and even the lost the hope to even have any form of safety um and uh you know it's kind of like you know in, in the movie the joker right at the end of the movie you know you got these people you know rising up and stuff and i feel like we're getting to that point i don't necessarily want to get to that point i see where people are at but at the same time, it's like I don't have anything else to offer. And so that idea and notion of safety is not about being comfortable, but it's about just the existence, being able to just exist and to live within what has been sold to me as the imaginative way of living. Right. You work hard, you go to work, take care of your family. You're going to be all right. Right. That was the narrative that was sold to me. And um, I'm pretty sure we can all agree that that's not always the case people of color, especially women. Right. And we haven't even gotten into sexual violence and, you know, and how that and that how that gets and traumatizes people as well. Right. So all those things, I think, is it's, that's that's part of it. Does that answer the question a little bit more? Yes, it does. Uh, Patrick, you look like you wanted to riff off of that conversation. No, nah, I was just I just, I just have a lot of thoughts. Um, I guess it's one of the thoughts that come to my mind as well. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure where the church is at right now. Um, especially in, in talking about like, how do we live this every day? Cause I just feel like the church is just kind of, I think the church wants equilibrium. I think church just wants everything to be, everything to be calm and normal. And yes, I don't, I don't feel like that the church knows how to deal with the, the idea, especially the prophetic idea of God being disruptive. And maybe all of the things that are happening right now is a disruption 
in, in the status quo and how things are established in the society that needs to change and how God is involved in that. I just feel like the church's theology doesn't know how to wrestle with that. And so the church's involvement in bringing about these changes or, if, you know, in participating in racial justice, I'm just like, what, how, how, how do we, how do we encourage the church to be more involved in that? Um, because I think that the church, if it really truly understands it, its theology, its theology supports the change that everybody wants. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the church is holding on to this, this vision of what it means to be human and what it means to live life and what it means to be in community that I feel like that doesn't involve God shaking things up to make room for new things to actually grow. Um, so um, I'm wondering like, cause I think even, even me and you and Janelle, we, when we were in Pasadena, we talked about like, how do we encourage the church to actually go to council meetings to see what's going on in their communities and be able to, to, to wrestle with what are certain policies that would help, you know, certain issues and things that they recognize that they know because they actually connect to the people in the community. But to get the church to do that, the church, yeah, I don't know. I'm 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 wrestling with how does how does the church get involved well, in that? And go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm just gonna play off you right here in this moment. Um, but Erica and I talk a lot about like the definition of justice, like the fundamental definition of justice is the process of making things right. Um, and I think, I think what is important to realize, especially when it comes to racial justice, because racial justice is deeply rooted in colonization. Um, and we cannot fight with the same tools as colonization. Um, right. it, it's not going to work. And if colonization is rooted off of taking, um, then racial justice has to be birthed out of giving. And mm. it's going to take, uh, especially the posture of the church, a, a, a deep, robust, fundamental theology of giving um, to mm. be able to give of themselves, to be able to give of their wealth, to be able to give of their privilege and the things that they received because of the narrative and the history of racism is going to take intentionality to study the history of, of race um, in America and internationally, um, to, to listen to voices of indigenous authors, to listen to voices of, of black authors, um, and even to... Um, authors of, of Asian descent as well. Uh, I, think, I think it's so important for us to recalibrate our understanding of the narratives of history so that we can understand what we have and how we got it and the need to give. Um, and in lectures, we used to say, give until it hurts. Um, I think to, in order to make things right, to engage that process of making things right, if literally people died in the process of taking, we may even have to give even further beyond the past of hurting. Um, or, or the people who are uh, of privilege and not oppressed who have benefited from it. And I say it that way because as Dan pointed out, we live in the context of empire. And so there, there are layers to the kinds of privileges that we have, um, even as Black people living in the United States. And so where we are experiencing certain, certain oppressions for being Black in America and descendants of slaves, um, there are also other ways in which we participate 
and oppression right. and racial injustices yeah. globally by virtue of being in America and our capitalistic society and the way we engage our purchasing power. Um, because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19, Jeff Bezos is a trillionaire and even black folks participate in buying off of Amazon. Uh, right. Black and brown folks, we participate in buying off of Amazon, and that is oppressing people. When we we see, man, those Amazon delivery drivers are the most angry people I have ever met. Um, they they are not getting paid uh, for the work, and they're getting overworked. Uh, and it's and it's not it's not okay. And it's a, it's an oppressive system. And so we have to really critically think about what are we going to have to give up to actually undo structural and systemic racism. Um, we have to be very intentional about our purchasing practices, how we engage people, how we actually think about uh, our own inheritance or how we got to where we got. Um, and even if we think that we built it all of our own two feet, it's still gonna require us to give so that we can help participate in dismantling these systems of racial injustice, uh, which were built off of taking from folks. I'll also say real quick, too, that I think, because I agree completely with that, that there has been easily a century of people, smart people, smarter than me, talking about what it would take to change. So when I say I don't know, I say that in the context of what Janelle, you were just talking about empire, because I feel like in the realm of empire, we have reached the limits of what we can do. There's been, a, again, over a century of people uh, that have come before us, all of us that have been talking about what needs to happen to change. You can even look at some of Frederick Douglass's writings, right, uh, about what needs to happen, what things need to change, um, because it's difficult to not believe and so any of y'all who are educated that none of this stuff is planned, <laughs> is systemic. Because when you think about it, there is no organized central area of wealth for black Americans. Let's just keep that real. I mean, yeah, there are rich people. Yeah, you got LeBron James. You got Oprah Winfrey. Absolutely. But that money isn't interconnected. You got to think about it. You know, in the Jewish community, we've heard this forever, right? It's almost a month that a dollar stays in that community. Okay. Chinese community, same thing, 21 days, right? And in the black community, it's six hours, <laughs> six to eight hours. Hey, brothers going to get their check. And it's just like, shoot, man, that Amazon boy is popping. So, <laughs> and, you know, man, and I, again, I, I call my own self out. I'll be the first to say it because it's just like, Okay, for example, I like like I've been surviving the Rona by doing like home remodeling. Like a long time ago, oh, you know, I used to be a contractor and stuff, and so like I'm remodeling the bathroom and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So I was looking for an eight foot ladder, um, you know, and a brother's looking for his stuff. I wanted a one A compliant, a FOSHA compliant ladder, you know, and uh, the, the place that had it the cheapest was Home Depot, and I'm like, dang it, but Home Depot, the CEO's like tripping and. He's like telling black people like he could care less if they came and never shopped and right. And then I'm faced with that decision because every other place is 150, 160. And I'm like, do I save these $70 and go? Because we have capitulated to the idea and notion of ease, right? Simplicity. I don't have to hail a cab anymore. No, I've got an app. I'll just get a hold of Uber. 
right? And those people are absolutely mad and pissed as well, right? You know, you think, of, <laughs> I remember when I was in San Diego, this was before everything hit, um, I took a cab ride because I was trying to, you know, hook, ho hook up the homies and stuff, man. This brother, he was from West Africa, he was from Sierra Leone, and he was hot. The whole ride, 15 minutes, he's telling me about how bad Uber is. And I mean, he's going off. Of course, then at the end, he was like, he didn't want to take my card. He was like, brother, do you have cash? And I was like, oh, man, come on, man. See, that's what people do. But my point being is, is that the people who are the workers, and I know this is going to sound Marxist, but it's, it, it's the truth. The people who are the works, workers have it the worst, right? Because the people at the top aren't the ones feeling it. They're not the ones right. feeling that pinch. And even if they lose $10 million, to them, it's just kind of like, oh, man, I lost $20. That's, eh, you know, yeah, lose some, win some, right? And that type of system, again, within this system, I don't see a future. Again, there's plenty of other plans. And you got Ice Cube coming out, you know, with this, you know, the, the platinum plan. And I'm like, oh, brother, like... You just ignored like all even the last 20 years of people who've been working in the community daily, daily, daily that you, you know, go to supersede them and then have the audacity to go and talk with Trump. But that's for another conversation. Um, but, yes, I will say that there's there's been stuff out there, but folks have not heeded that. And because we're still separate. I mean, you think about this. I mean, think about even in the Christian speaker world, there is no centralized unit for people of color. We're all fighting over these little gigs. We're all fighting over that one little piece of pie that, that, that's given to us. And I'm just like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm done fighting. I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to have to argue over gigs. I don't want to have to do that stuff. But because we're in the system that we're insistent, if I don't, if, you know what I'm saying? If I don't get paid, it's like, well, how am I, I this mic didn't just appear. Like, I didn't just pray like, oh, somebody be like a, and this mic was poof. And it was just here, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So... Somebody had to pay for it, and that had to come out of somebody's thing. So it's just like, what is the reexamination of ethics in the time of George Floyd? Wow, that uh, that 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 part. Um, I'm going to toss it off to Erica for uh, thoughts and. Um, a pitch to the final question. And then also for those of you all who are listening in, if you all want to think about any questions that you may have, um, you could throw your questions in the chat. Um, and that uh, would be awesome. And we'll engage those as well. Oh, okay. Well, I think I have a lot of thoughts. Um, something that my mind went to as Janelle, you're talking about um, capitalism and Black folks kind of particip participating in capitalism in, in certain systems that I think we we know to be problematic. And then you're talking about the church. And I mean, I think we're all kind of talking about the church. I guess I, I started thinking specifically about the Black church. And Janelle, I know we've talked about this um, in terms of the, the place of the Black church right now or where, where the Black church is at right now in this current movement. Um, and what came to mind was the Eddie God article, um, mm. The Black Church is Dead, and how he talks about, you know, megachurches and prosperity gospel. And um, I think the, the term he uses is the routinization of prophetic witness. And um, yeah, I don't know if. To think about um, is. Um, is the prof 
it the function the current like how is the black church and the black church's prophetic voice functioning right now because i think that's something that for me like as a young person i've been struggling with to see um i think a lot of people have talked about how this movement is you know secular uh, compared to civil rights movement and things like that. And so I've just been thinking about that. And so maybe we can think about that as we go into this next question, um, which I think kind of speaks to a little bit of that struggle that I'm having, which is what would you say to people who are struggling to put, um, struggling with putting racial justice and waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, like in the same conversation. Um, so yeah, that's, that's our, that's our next avenue for discussion. Patrick, go ahead. I know, I know, I see you got something. Brother. Well, actually, say say that question again. I want you, um, Erica, say the question again. Yeah. So the question is, what would you say to people struggling with putting racial justice and waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ in, in conversation? So kind of those. Well, I think, Erica, you're you're kind of muted. cutting out a little bit. So I'm I'm gonna um, frame the question a little bit again. Um, so in the context that, you know, Christianity is, has been a problematic religion and there are several people, whether they are within the church or outside of the church, um, who are even, um, struggling about Christians, even participating in racial justice, um, at all, because it's been an oppressive religion in so many ways from so many angles that you look at it. And actually there are many people who don't especially the people who don't understand that there are different um, expressions of Christian faith. Um, and so what, um, how they have encountered Christianity or whether it be through history or in person, um, it's, it's been problematic. And so uh, what do we say to people uh, who are struggling with putting this whole conversation of racial justice um, and waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ in the same conversation, who don't even see that um, that that these should be held together, um, who who look at Christians trying to show up for movements for racial justice and say, "Go home, you shouldn't mm. be here because you are part of the oppressor. Um, you, you're part of empire. You're part of the system." Um, and when it, and and they're not wrong in the United States of America. <laughs> Um, so, so how do we as a church hold that? How do we as people who identify as Christian in one way or another hold that, uh, that struggle of people pursuing racial justice and waiting for the coming of Christ? Um, I mean, I think like, yeah, I've, I've had conversations with people, um, who, yeah, assume that that Christianity. I, well, I feel like most of the time their experiences with the Christian church usually comes from a particular context. Um, if they grew up um, in a context where they're not, they haven't been churched, um, the only understanding that they have of church is the white evangelical perspective, um, which usually in that conversation, I usually kind of give people my black church upbringing and the things that I learned and the perspective that I've gained from that. Um, 
But then you also have people who may have grew up in the black church who, you know, have experienced things like judgment and criticism because, you know, they're young or because they listen to hip hop music and things like that, that they don't want to be involved in the church and um, in the black church either. Um, I, I feel like the conversations that I've been in, um, as I engage talking about scripture and talking about the Bible and even talking about Jesus in a way that shows that Jesus is always in solidarity with people, oftentimes with the people that we don't expect, and oftentimes even with those people who think that Jesus don't have anything to do with them, that oftentimes Jesus is often engaging with those very people. Um, and so I, I, I feel like the church has to, or even us as Christians, I feel like that we have to find ways of expressing the gospel and expressing expressing uh, scripture that stands outside of those contrived ways of understanding Christianity. I think I think people are hungering for something new, a new perspective. I think that we oftentimes like fall back on, you know, or I would say a lot of the the older saints. You know, when the young people are asking them questions, they fall back on just the scriptures that they know and the things that they learn when they was growing up in church and just repeating certain scriptures. And a lot of the young people are asking all these questions like, does that relate to the situations and the circumstances and the conditions of everything that I see going on and I deal with every day? And I just feel like that that I don't know if that means that that Christians need to engage in a new hermeneutic and a new way of interpreting scripture. Um, that's, that's more biblically sound. I don't know if I want to even use that term, but I, I just feel like that we need, we need something new and different that, that leaves open more possibilities than, than what I think those contrived ways of understanding the church or Christianity does. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that you know, when I'm in the classroom and, you know, I try to have conversations with folks and, and one of the good things about where I teach at is that we get everybody. I mean, yeah, I'm at a Christian college, but, you know, admissions because them fools need money. <laughs> Shoot, anybody can come. It's open enrollment. You don't have to, you know, <laughs> we're not Wheaton, right? Uh, you know, we don't have to assign you, you know, this, this, you know, the sign this thing. And so I get folks, I get folks. And for me, I just tell everybody at the beginning, like, look, Whatever class it is, I'm just like, look, I know we're at a religious institution, but look, I, I've made my peace with all of the Abrahamic faith. So you're not going to hear from me. I mean, some of these things. So, again, a different perceptive. And, and the thing is, is that the material is out there um, and people want to know yeah. about that. And this is for me why I, I've talked about this for the last 15, 18 years. It's like there's there's something within hip hop that is a grounding that is theological uh, and that is about connecting with the mystic, connecting with the answers. Because just like we've talked about, so much that we were told was the devil, don't do that, that's new age. That's, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, like where did we even get that from? Like, how do we even know that? I mean, how do we even know that this is demonic? Like if I don't understand it, does it that automatically mean it's from the devil? And <laughs> it, it, it's I think we got to begin right. to explore that. And that's why, you know, I advocate largely, you know, against only solely presenting one realm of Christianity. Right. Um, Christianity is so vast and diverse and there's so many 
facets to it that all but all we've ever gotten and right and I had to go to school for for this stuff and learn you know and read about this stuff this stuff isn't just accessible at a regular Sunday school worship right nobody's going to talk to you about you know how the messiah messianic narrative you know appeared at least 400 years prior to Jesus even coming nobody's going to have those conversations right with you because people don't like ambiguity and that kind of goes back to just where our species is right now we want answers Right. We want to know that when I do this, but we're we're at the limits of that. We're at the limits. I'm sure there's plenty of people who have prayed to God and asked God not to kill their loved one because of covid. And they died anyway. And so it's like we got to have broader answers. Patrick has, has said that I think and people are also craving the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, because Jesus, it's, it's vast, you know, that, that Jesus is vastly unknown um, about, you know, the, about the work that, that he did in that and stuff. And so, I don't know, I think that's part of it. And again, I'll go back to um, the fact that, you know, there's been people talking about the change for a long time. Um, and I don't know what it's going to take, uh, you know, for, for major things to change. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say that, yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I think I think that's what that's another thing that I was trying to say is that we need like a creative exchange or a way to explore like faith and and scriptures in a way that like give because even when I was having so when I was I was working at this this restaurant in DC um, and a lot of people knew I was Christian a lot of people knew I was uh, went to seminary and like sometimes like the conversations that we was having started off kind of kind of you know, kind of crazy and kind of, um, you know, explicit. But even in those conversations, like I was, a we were able to then also have conversations about faith and spirituality. Um, in the church, you can't do that because you, you, you got, you got limitations of, of what you, you can't look like I, I've had, I've had conversations with, 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 with young people where they're talking about like sexually explicit stuff and, even within that, then I could create a conversation of talking about what sex means in the Bible. But you can't do that if, if you're in a, in a church context. I feel like there needs to be a conversation where there needs to be exploration. It needs to be a creative exchange. And I feel like that there has to be an intergenerational dialogue. Because I think the older folks would always be the ones that have the answers when they don't got the answers. And I feel like there needs to be space for us to actually engage each other. Cause I, I don't think a lot of the old people understand a lot of the things that are going on mm-hmm. um, in the current situation. And then also you yeah. mentioned about hip hop um, and, and different perspectives. I feel like hip hop gives us a really good example of, of, of true multiculturalism that the church needs to learn from. Cause you think about the history of hip hop, like the whole genre of hip hop, is is a combination of different regions kind of given their own little flavor and given their own little artistic uh, contribution to the to the ultimate genre of hip hop whether it comes from uh you know where whether hip hop starts off in in Brooklyn I mean in the Bronx New York but then you also you got you got the Houston version you got the Oakland version you got church wasn't or for them, the church was separate because they wouldn't even allow the young people to grieve as the young people needed to grieve and express that. Um, and so in, in even observing like 
uh, I think the when we as the church and as people of, of followers of Jesus can't figure out how to be present with people and to walk with people and to hold space with people, um, even if it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, I think that's where it begins to tear down um, the hope and the opportunity to actually be able to move and work in in the areas of racial justice together because we haven't built trust. We haven't built relationship. We haven't allowed people to be fully who they are. I like to tell people all the time, like Peter, we forget that Peter walked with Jesus for three years and then cut off a man's ear. Um, We don't allow grace for people to figure it out. and to work out their spirituality and to work out their faith and whatever that means. And so we start cutting people off and we start creating restrictions and boundaries rather than holding to our core and our center and our anchor and say, you know, I can go wherever I want to go. I can be in the presence of whatever I want to be in the presence of, because I know uh, I am morally and I am morally anchored. And so the work here is simply to be present with people who are grieving, be present with people who are seeking justice and to do it with them toe to toe and not think that I am somehow better than them um, or not disparage myself even, um, but to say, you know what? There is an injustice for these people here. There's injustice for the folks who are unhoused. There are injustice for the folks who are unemployed and underemployed. There are injustice for women. There are injustice for indigenous folks. There are injustice for black folks. There are injustice for folks who live underneath a police state. Uh, So how are we going to work together to dismantle these systems of injustice? Because we need um, the coming together of people. Um, And I think in doing that, we are being far more of a witness that Christ calls us to be than we are just standing on our corner um, and just looking at people sideways, like how dare they play that music or uh, how dare they burn down that building or or how dare they loot uh or like when, when you think about it, i was actually listening to a podcast the other day and someone was saying uh like looting was just a uh, folks way of redistributing wealth to the poor like when you when you look at the videos of people looting target in minneapolis they were coming out with diapers uh, they were coming out with toilet paper. They were coming out with soap. They were coming out. They were coming out with practical things, and then redistributing it to the people, uh, except for the Jordans. Uh, <laughs> the, the Jordan store got took. <laughs> it was like the one black owned business <laughs> that, that that got took, but that was expected. They had to, um, they had to distribute the Jordans too. That that's was a right as well. <laughs> that's right. A lot of people got Jordans in the neighborhood. That was they these shoes. That's right. <laughs> that's right. 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 <laughs> But, but yeah, we, we have to think about what does it mean to be present for people first. And that's the Jesus that we see in the New Testament that Dan opened up with, that radical Jesus who wasn't really judging people for their background and who's who was showing up and just being present with people where they were at. Um, and if we can live out that mm. testimony, uh, then people will less question our capacity to pursue the work of racial justice and wait for the coming of Christ at the same time. Great word. Yes. Yeah. 
I agree. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that's what young people want is people to meet them where they are. Like, you know, I think, uh, I think in my experience and working with a lot of young people, I think that I was able to, to have more impactful, more profound, more interesting conversation. Because I mean, like, don't be surprised that, these, that a lot of young people are not thinking theologically themselves if you really engage them. But you gotta, you gotta, you gotta come where they are, um, and you know, once they feel comfortable that that you are meeting them where they are, then they're able to be more open about those things. That's where I feel like, you know, in some sense, don't get me wrong. I mean, I started out in the evangelical world with Young Life. And for those of you know, who know what Young Life is, like oh, God outreach. bless you, Dan. Yeah, man, I tell you, it's <laughs> a youth outreach organization. It was evangelical all the way. And at the time, you know, I didn't know no better. I just figured, oh, this is what God has called me to do. Um, and But I will say that there are some ideologies around that. For example, earning the right to be heard. I've carried that in every place that I've gone. Um, earning that right. Like I can't just come in and it's easy, right? With a PhD and I have letters after my name and I have a book. Damn it. You should listen to me. <laughs> so I feel like that, that old that brother man on uh, on house party, like, God damn it. What, what you doing over there, boy? How come you ain't got no day? Turn that music down. You know, it's like the older you get, it's very easy to fall into that comfort going back to what we were talking about before of the middle class or whatever class you landing in that I think it's important exactly what uh, Patrick was saying about, I got cut off, but exactly what you were talking about, how we can learn from one another because far too often as older folks, we just want to kind of lecture and be like, this is what y'all young people need to do. Um, mm. it, and, and that, again, that joint's going to go in one, one year and, and out the other. I know I have, you know, a kid that was born in 2006. And so she, ain't, she ain't trying to just hear no dang lecture. So, right. There are innovative ways and things that happen when there is a collective body of of people that are trying to work together. Um, so, yeah, I'll say that. All right. Uh, we are wrapping up on our time here. Um, and so I uh, there weren't any specific questions in the chat. I've been kind of following uh, the comments that people have been making and that's been beautiful. Um, so uh, as we wrap up here, um, I wanna offer um, everyone opportunity for uh, final words and final thoughts on um, this uh, preparation or racial justice as preparation for the coming of Christ. What do you want people to think about as um, we move, continue to move into Advent, continue to move in this world um, where race continues to be problematic? Um, I think for me, because coming from, um, you know, coming straight out of grad school, wearing a lot of the theological stuff was very heady and intellectual. Um, I think moving to DC and then moving back to my hometown um, has forced me to begin to engage, like how does this theology become concrete and practical? And I think that's something that's, that's still a journey. Cause I'm, I, I, I can I can be a very, as Janelle knows, I could be a very uh, heady and very intellectual person. Um, but you know, when you're living in the neighborhood with 17 year old kids getting shot and killed where police is, is, you know, like when I was in my, um, when I was in my house in DC, my my front door just like 
wouldn't open. Like we had to get the door fixed. So in order for me to even grab the mail, I had to go through the back door, go through the alleyway, go through the front to grab a package. And I had to actually tell my my white roommate to go grab the package because of so many police that was around. I didn't want the police to stop me and be like, why are you grabbing that package off the porch? Um, so like there's a level where all the theological stuff, you know, that I'm learning, I'm, I'm, I'm having to wrestle with, you know, what does that mean? You know, even, even within my family. Um, and so, um, I guess I would, I would say that we, we definitely need a theology that's able to touch, um, those things and, and those situations. And so, yeah. Mm. Um, well, I'll I'll say this. Um, it, you know, I think I I would definitely second that. I think that I think at the end of the day, we we're we're heading toward an apex in in society, Western society. I think um, there's there's some some big markers that I think we have to take a look at that historically um, have not been good markers, right? When you have more rich people and that rich pool continues to get smaller and smaller and you have more poor people, you know, um, what is it going to take, right, for that mass to explode? We also have a planet that's changing, right? You know, can you think about, uh, you know, a changing climate? What is that going to look like? What is the next 10 years, you know, going to look like and what's that going to bring? We've already had a We've already had a, you know, four years of Trump, but who's the next one coming behind that? It's not like any of this stuff is over. And I think it's so easy to forget, oh, Biden and Harris won. That's whoo, whoo, we good now. No, we, he won by like, like centimeters, like millimeters. And so those folks are still out there. We have lost a baseline of what is truth, what is fact. Um, now we're just all relative in the public sphere, right? Everybody's fact is correct. And don't you dare tell anybody that they're wrong because that makes you a fascist. So it 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 loses right then the perspective. Then you can't call out right all the white supremacists that are supporting Trump. You're like, well, hey, they're just they're that's just their point of view. You're trying to do the same thing that you're telling them not to do. And so we're we're in a precarious position. I would hope that we can we could wake up from that. Um, Patrick's right. It's easy to, to, to get intellectual. I'm, I'm, I'm in the Academy, right? I write the books. I go to conferences and, and say, you know, six syllable words and stuff, but how does that, <laughs> how does that translate to these cats across the street? How does that translate to my daughter? How does that translate to her friends? How does that then translate to just my own community? We, I've seen a different, in a good way, and a different view of my entire neighborhood on this block be, as a result of COVID. We got to know each other. It's like, no one's caring about postmodern theory. And, and it's like, shoot, we, we're all up in the house right now. So how do we live with that? How do we look at sustainability? How do we harvest rainwater? Um, get, you know, in aspects that you can go off the grid in the city. And so I think... With that, I will also say, because I'm a big advocate for black gun ownership, I also think that we have to arm ourselves, you know, for the, uh, you know, to whatever may happen, right? When you think about the amount of white militias that exist out there, um, it's staggering. Just those numbers outside of Chicago, over 700 groups, and that, that is almost doubled in three years, Um Right outside of Chicago. That's not including Indiana, Wisconsin, any of that. That's just right outside of Chicago here in good old Illinois, right? Lincoln. So 
those are some things that I'm concerned about. And I'm trying to figure out uh, what does that look like? And I would hope that we can begin to prepare. I would hope that our end of time, right, this next phase that we enter into humanity would not enter violently. I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't want to go that way. Um, but there's a lot, unfortunately, there's a lot of signs pointing towards that. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be hopeful, but I'm also going to try to, you know, keep my, keep my guns loaded. <sighs> Thank you, Dr. Dan. Uh, Erica, your last words. Yeah. Um, well, I, um, sorry, just want to make sure I'm good. Got a little note that said my internet was unstable for a second, but, um, I think I'll use, I'll use that this last word to, there's a question in the chat. Um, and the, the center question here is, um, it says, I wonder if at this day, how much actual scripture is truly being passed on as opposed to religious traditions and religious experiences. Um, and then, you know, the question goes on, it talks about, you know, presenting new perspectives on scripture in order to invoke change in Christians understanding and, um, you know, new ways that we could, um, read scripture so that, you know, we're hearing and seeing that you can't separate Jesus from social justice and equity. Um, and I guess I, my, you know, experience of this is only within my experience. I think that though looking at and what I've learned about, um, Christianity in the United States is I, I would say there probably is a lot of kind of tradition and dogma and, and, um, yeah, things like that being just kind of passed down and maybe not so um, critically engaged or challenged. And so, um, yeah, I I would say, and, and I don't know if anybody else wants to jump in here, but I would say that I, I think that there is a lot of kind of tradition. Uh, there's a book I was reading called 12 Lives That Hold America Captive, where um, he refers, the author, uh, I think his name is Jonathan Walton, refers to um, this kind of, white American Christianity that we see as white American folk religion. And um, it's really kind of this, it's like white supremacy that's been wrapped in theology and religious dogma and just kind of like passed down. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I wanted to make sure that question didn't um, kind of get lost as we were closing up here. But I, I think that, you know, that's a really important thing for us to talk about and think critically about and challenge um, as we move forward and commit um, to social justice um, in the church and in the world. Thank you. Uh, and and I would say in in closing um, and sending people off is do practice racial justice. Just do it. <laughs> Even when people um, critique you or upset at you or the work is hard and you feel like it's not gonna come through, um, do it anyways. Because what we're really doing is centering the voices of the marginalized. We're doing the work that Jesus came on earth to do. We're living that out. Um, and when we don't know what to do, ask our neighbors, um, figure it out, talk to people literally ask people, what do you need? What does justice look like for you? And then when they respond, figure out a way to help make that happen. You may not be able to do that on your own, but how do you get someone connected to the resources that, the, that, that helps them get to that level of stability that Dr. Dan was talking about earlier today. Like people just want their basic needs met. Yeah. Uh, people just want stability. Yeah. 
And I think when we are able to get outside of ourselves, I know COVID has brought us all indoors, but when we get outside of ourselves and get to know the names of our neighbors and get to know the names of the people that we have historically feared, um, just because they're walking down the street, but they actually live two doors down, what does it look like for actually to be in relationship, to be in community and use community as our tool to actually deconstruct these systems that colonization built by isolating us um, and, uh, and capitalism built by saying it's only about getting you and yours. Practice mutual aid. If someone needs a cup of sugar, give it to them. Um, if someone needs a jacket, you've got to give them one. Like it, sometimes it's a lot more simple than we actually think it is. And then other times it's far more complex than we actually think it is. But either way, do it anyways. Keep practicing. Um, and then Erica, do you have the blessing that we want to close people and send people away with? And then with that, we'll say goodbye. Yeah, let me just pull that up really quick. While she's pulling it up, I want to thank Dr. Dan Hodge for being a guest today and thank Patrick Wallace for being a guest today. Thank you guys for showing up. I know y'all was like, we just going to participate as viewers. And I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. This was, this was great. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. I have our, our blessing up. Okay. As we go... Be people of faithfulness, be vigilant for the mistreatment of those marginalized because of their race, and be even more vigilant for opportunities to act in solidarity with those who are mistreated, excluded, and oppressed. Be people of hope in a racially unjust context, actively awaiting the fullness of Christ to come, and actively participating in the movement of Christ right now. Commit to racial justice and be people of love. Thank you all for joining us today. <laughs>